Hi, and welcome to the Christian Fundamentals Foundations course. As we journey through these lessons together, my hope is that your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ will find meaningful expression and lead you on to maturity and fruitfulness in your walk with Him. I trust that this lesson will guide and encourage your heart. Good evening, everyone. Uh, for those who, who don't know me, uh, my name is Siobhan, and uh, I've been uh, working with Pastor Michael for the past five years now, going on six years. And uh, since we're talking about salvation, I thought that I would tell you a little bit about how I came to know the Lord and start following Jesus. And so my story starts uh, with Jesus starts uh, at the age of 16, where I was forced by my grandmother to go on a youth camp uh, with the Anglican church that she belonged to. And uh, I, at the time, was not a believer in Jesus. I wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And my heart towards him, I wouldn't say it was cold, but it was just disinterested. Uh, and so I went on this youth camp. At the time, I was a practicing Rastafarian. And I went on this camp, and at the, on the last day of the camp, the youth leader at the time uh, gave a message about Jesus. And at the end, he gave what I now know to be an altar call, but at the time, it was just weird. I saw these people singing songs, and in my mind, it was karaoke with their hands lifted. And... I, I didn't know how to deal with what I was seeing, but I knew that these people were weird and I didn't want to be a part of their group. And so I listened to this message and towards the end, he, he kind of, he, I now know that he had a word of knowledge and he said, there's a young man in this room that I believe God is going to use one day for his kingdom. And you know the, the stories go when people say that and they get this, rush towards in their heart, their heart starts beating fast, and people say, yes, they just knew it was them. Uh, that did not happen to me. I, in my mind, was saying, it is not me, it's probably somebody else, and let's wait for them to go up. And most of the young men at that time in that youth group went forward to receive the Lord, except me. So I just stood there while everyone was kind of getting prayed for, and then the youth leader graciously came to me and said, I'm thankful for all of these men that came, but I was actually talking about you, and you're not responding. <laughs> so I just need to let you know that God is talking about you, and would you like to follow Jesus? And I said, ah, okay, I'll follow Jesus. Um, and that's my salvation experience. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll follow you. And God took that, uh, okay, and he, he, he set it alight. And from that day on, I fell in love with his word. And my greatest joy till this day is sharing his word with others. And so I'm absolutely privileged that I get to do this with you tonight. Or this morning, or this afternoon, wherever you are. <laughs> so, let's open up... Uh, and, and read the purpose of the lesson tonight. If you have notes or you're taking notes, um, point number one, uh, the purpose of this lesson 
is to empower each individual to understand, appropriate, and impart the message of the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and eternal salvation. So that's quite simple. And so that's what we're going to be doing tonight. We're going to be educating ourselves and going through the word just to, just to define what we mean by salvation and how to share that message with those around us. And so point number two, point 2.1, the word salvation comes from the Greek word soteria, meaning deliverance, safety, and preservation. And this word soteria is actually where we get the theological term soteriology. Uh, soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. And basic, the, basically the doctrine of salvation asks a few questions. And these are the questions it asks. Who saved or who saves? Uh, by whom do we get saved? So who is saved and who gets saved? By whom do we get saved? From what are we saved, and by what means are we saved? And so those are the those are the, those are the questions that that kind of frame when we when we talk about salvation, and the doctrine of salvation. Those are the questions that frame what we are talking about. Um, it is linked with the word sozo, which means save, deliver, protect, heal, and to make whole. And this. This doctrine, this idea of salvation, really came into sharp focus around 500 years ago when a Greek, a Greek, a German priest by the name of Martin Luther kick-started the Protestant Reformation. And his experience was, as a Catholic uh, priest, was that you are saved by faith plus your works. That's what the Catholic doctrine says, uh, so saved by faith and then by partaking in the sacraments, which is uh, baptism, partaking of the mass and all the other sacraments that come along with become being a Catholic. And so Martin Luther is walking up steps and he sees this, this scripture written by grace, you are saved through faith. And he gets this understanding that actually I can do nothing for my salvation. And that starts the Protestant Reformation because from that point he begins to ask a lot of questions about the means of salvation or how we get saved. And so since then, salvation has become probably the main focus of the Christian faith. For the last 500 years, Protestants have zoned in on this very doctrine. What does it mean to be saved? How does one get saved? Who saves and what are we saved from? And so, salvation applies to the deliverance granted by God to those who accept these conditions of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. The only one through whom the salvation can be obtained and upon confession of Him as Lord. Receiving salvation is the act whereby the benefits of Christ's sinless life, death and resurrection, to make atonement for the sins of mankind are applied in the life of the believer. And so we, we kind of see that as you set this framework, these are the things we're going to be talking about tonight. And so point three uh, talks about engaging faith for salvation. And the first point here is salvation comes only through faith. And the scripture reference here is John 3 verse 16. I think 
if I were to ask you to close your eyes and call John 3.16, everyone would not, no one will miss a beat at all. We would just verbatim quote it and we would be able to just do that without any ease. If I asked you to quote the next two verses, I'm not sure if we would have that much success. But um, yeah, so this is what John 3.16 says. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I think that answers the first question, who is saved? John 3.16 says, whosoever believes. No one is excluded from the salvation of God. And it also answers the question by what means we are saved. Belief, or we use the word faith, trust in the Lord and his finished work, which is actually the second point. Our faith is anchored to our belief in the finished work of Christ. And the scripture here is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4, and it says this, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for sins, for our sins, according to the scriptures. Take note of that point, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. So, I want you to pay attention to that phraseology there, when he says, according to the scriptures, he's... He's pointing to the fact that this is not something that him or the other apostles have made up. But in fact, that this was the plan of God from the beginning. To save us. To be our rescuer. And so when he says, according to the scriptures, one of the scriptures that Paul is referring to here is actually found in Jeremiah 31. Verse 31 to 34. And this is what it says in the ESV translation. It says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand out to bring them from the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no, one, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And the apostles, you find the scripture written in the book of Hebrews as well. This was an anchor for them, that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was talking about. They relied heavily on the fact that this idea was not their idea. This idea was God's idea. It was his idea to save us. It was his idea to save us through Christ. It was his idea that it would be by faith and faith alone. And that we would be the recipients of that salvation. And so when Paul says, according to the scriptures... He's basing it on all of the Old Covenant, all of the Old Testament. And we should, ne- we should not neglect it because in there we see the nature and the goodness, the mercy and the love of God for all of us. And so faith for salvation now finds its expression when we confess, underline that, confess what we believe. Um, Romans 10 verse 
8 to 10 says this. But what does it say? Talking about the, 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 the text, the, the scriptures. But what does it say? The word is near you. He's quoting Deuteronomy. Um, I'm not sure of the reference right now, but I know he's, he's quoting Deuteronomy at this point. I think it's Deuteronomy 28. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And here when Paul talks about the heart, he's talking about the entire being of the person. When we believe with our entire being and confess with our mouths, then we will find that salvation. And confession here, I know that this was a point made last week, that confession here is not just lip service, not just about saying something or saying the correct thing or mouthing the facts. It's actually about not only confessing it, but living it. Confession is about a lifestyle. And we know this because in the early church, to confess Christ was to confess a new king, and that could cost you your life because the emperor of Rome was the king and the ruler of the land. And when the Christian confessed that actually Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the king of the Jews, they were actually saying, we denounce your kingship and we have a new king, and that could cost them their life. So just confession by itself wasn't just something that was taken lightly. And when they say confess here, they, they, he's, he's actually talking about obedience, right? And I have a scripture here from uh, Matthew that I'd like to read because our words come from somewhere. Our words don't just show up out of nowhere. And this is what Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 34 to 37 says. You brood of vipers, he's talking to the Pharisees, obviously. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by the, for by the words, by your words, you'll be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And so, here Paul, when he's talking about confession, he is actually using the words of Jesus in the background. It's an old rabbinical technique where when you mention a word, it's supposed to bring to remembrance a scripture or something that, that was said previously. And so these words are not held in isolation, but they're actually held with the entire body of the canon of scripture. And so this is what we see when we, when we read about confession. We're actually reading about obedience, that railway track where faith and obedience walk side by side. Confession and obedience walk side by side. And so the next verse here is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed the gospel was preached to you as well as to them. But the word which they had did, that heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And here Paul is, uh, well, the writer of Hebrews is actually uh, talking about the children of Israel 
and how they were delivered. So he's talking about salvation, how they were delivered from the hand of the Egyptians. And when they came into their deliverance, their promised land, they, while they're roaming in the desert, their salvation is not met with faith. And so their actions was deemed as disobedience, their grumbling and their complaining. Basically, their confession of mouth was a testimony to their confession of lifestyle. What they were saying in saying, in complaining about their deliverance and being in the desert was, God, we're not satisfied with your salvation. We're not satisfied with the means of your salvation. We're not satisfied with where you've delivered us to or from. A lot of their complaints were saying, send us back. And so, here we see what it means to mix this word that we receive with faith. It means to mix the word we receive with obedience, with following Jesus actively. It's not a passive thing. And you can actually, um, you can actually find this in James chapter 2. I'm not going to read the, the passage in James chapter 2. But James 2 really talks about what it looks like to have active faith. Where James says, you know, if, if, you, say, if you see someone who is hungry and say to him, be well, be warm and you see someone who is, who is homeless, and you say, be fed, and be clothed, and be warm, and you don't do anything to help that person, then your faith is dead. It's not alive. It's not working. And so any faith that doesn't have corresponding actions is a faith that isn't living. And, and so that's something that, that we, should, we should be careful of. And so... Now we're getting, I, I, hear, uh, I hear a lot of questions in my head uh, where we said, you know, faith is, faith is something that is active and faith is something that, that has action. And then the very next point says that salvation cannot be earned. So what, what are we talking about when we say actions and works or good works? What does that mean in the scope of salvation? And Ephesians 2 verse uh, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so what this is a picture of is actually what Paul is doing here is actually he's trying to get you to flash back to the, the Israelites being taken out of the land of Egypt. It was not their doing that they came out of the land, not by their strength, not by their might, not by anything they could do of themselves. It was God by himself, by his own hand, which he says over and over, that he took them out of the land of Egypt. And so Paul is asking us to hearken back to, to that, that type of salvation. And that's what our salvation is really like. It's God by himself saving us. And when we accept that salvation, right, even the gift of faith is a gift unto us. When we accept that salvation, that salvation changes us. We respond to it. In a certain way, and I just I just want to quote to you uh, a quote from A. W. Tozer, uh, a hero of mine. In his book, the uh, the pursuit of God, in chapter one, the first line says this: Christian theology teaches the doctrine of prevenient grace, which briefly stated means this: Before a man can see God, God must have first sought the man. And that's our Christian experience. Everything in the Christian life is a response to the goodness of God. Our salvation is a response, 
The way in which we accept our salvation is in the response to Him saving us. The way we, we, we deal with anything, we worship in response to His goodness. Everything in the life of faith is a life of response. The entire universe of God responds to His goodness and His majesty and His holiness. And we are no different. We respond to Him. And so, when we, when we see this, we, we need to respond in faith, in Him saving us. Salvation is available for everybody. He has saved everybody. He has given everybody the opportunity to come into His kingdom. But we need to respond. And so, this leads us to the spiritual principle. Every time God issues an invitation, there is a fitting response that He desires. The, de- the decision to receive Christ in response is a response to his invitation. Each person must make their own personal response. It must be based upon the faith of the word of God and the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Derek Prince says this, each person must make his own response. No person can make the response required for another. Each person will be either saved or lost solely on their own response. I think what Derek Prince is getting at here is the fact that when it comes to God, and our salvation, and Him saving us, we cannot rely on anyone else. We cannot say, I, I had this funny, funny conversation with my mother, because my mother is not a, a believer in Jesus. And uh, she's had uh, many encounters with God uh, through me, uh, but she doesn't want, she doesn't, she's like, no, being a Christian is a bit too difficult, I don't want to do that, which I try to tell her, it's not about that, but she doesn't really accept it. So one day we're having this conversation. Um, her back is really sore, and uh, she comes home, and I'm, I'm, I'm watching my mother struggle to walk up one step. And I say to her, let me pray for you. God will heal you. And she says, no, I don't want any of this stuff. I don't believe in this. I, she, and she struggles all the way to her bedroom, and I go into my room, and I close the door behind me, and I say, God, my mom is not doing well. I need you to heal her. And so, next moment, my mom storms back into my room, opens the door, starts screaming at me. What did you do? I said, I did nothing. What are you talking about? She says, there's no more pain. There's nothing wrong with me. I just got off work. I told my boss I'm going to the doctor. And now I can't go to the doctor because I'm healed. And I've never seen anyone that upset that they've gotten healed before in their life. But she was upset with me because of this thing. And it shows you the goodness of God. He doesn't need you to do anything for him to save you, heal you, do something for you. Because he's just good. And so after this encounter, I have a conversation with her. I say, you know, that's what it's like to be a Christian. We think we deserve nothing and then God gives us everything. And my mom responds to me and says, isn't it enough that I believe that you believe? No, it's not enough. <laughs> you can't get into the kingdom of God on my faith. Um, so, yeah, I've had first-hand experience of this quote where someone is trying to rely on my, my trust in the Lord to, to get them into the kingdom. And so that ultimately leads us to this question of being born again. Now that we have spoken about the response and the mechanism by which we are saved, what does it mean to be saved? What does it actually mean for us to be Christians? 
And the next point uh, is a good um, description of what it means. It, to be born again, this is a term that we, we use uh, specifically within, within the Protestant movements, um, the Anglicans and Catholics and the other, the, those who did not uh, break away from those traditions. Don't necessarily, use, don't necessarily use this language, but if they trust in the Lord and are born of the Spirit, then they too are born again, even though they don't use the language. But let's define the language. Uh, Jesus makes it plain that without the definite personal experience of being born again, no one can ever enter the kingdom of God. And this term, born again, is only found in one uh, passage of Scripture in the entire New Testament, and that's in John uh, chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. And this is what it says. Uh, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, that's funny, he's walking around in the dark. He doesn't want anyone else to know that he's trying to follow Jesus. <laughs> he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so he, affirmed, he affirms Jesus' ministry. He affirms that Jesus is from God. And Jesus just comes from left field, from my, from my perspective. He's praising him, and the next thing you know, Jesus just shows up with some weird statement. And he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can, one, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Then Jesus said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you are born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And this phrase, born again, is actually ambiguous. It's an ambiguous phrase within the Greek uh, language. Uh, it can mean both to be born again, which like which Nicodemus thought about, and then it can also mean to be born of above or from above. And uh, I think if Jesus were to stand here in front of all of us and all of us were ignorant of our faith and he said, you need to be born again, we would all respond the way Nicodemus did. What are you trying to say here, Jesus? How is this possible that someone can be born again? And Jesus basically says, no, you're not understanding me. You need to be born of the Spirit, the Spirit of God and of water, the water of baptism, right? which is a, an act of faith. That's what, that's what baptism represents. It's an active and alive faith. And so to be born again of the Spirit and to be born of water. And so here we, we see in John chapter 20, so we've seen a statement from Jesus in the very first few chapters of, of John's gospel. And now at the, at the end of John's gospel, we see this account. We see in John 20, verse 21 to 22, it says, So Jesus said to them again, this is after his resurrection. They are scared and they've locked themselves in a room because they're fearful that the people are going to try and kill them. And so Jesus appears to them. He walks through the wall like only Jesus can. And he says, Peace to you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this idea of being born again, 
This is the disciples' experience of being born again, being born of the Spirit. Now, this phrase, like I told you about earlier on, this rabbinical technique, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, they, this word breathed here would actually be, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament, and to the learned reader of the Septuagint or the, the Jew, they would actually remember when God in Genesis chapter 2 breathes into Adam's nostrils. And so it would actually cause them to think back and say, is Jesus recreating humanity in this, in this instance? Is Jesus once again causing humanity to be born again in his own image and in his own likeness, to be born after himself once again? And so here we, we see new creation Jesus kick-starting the new creation, not only of humanity, but also of the entire universe. And so here we have this amazing picture of what Jesus does in each of us when we receive him. The Spirit of God comes and dwells in us. And all of a sudden we have that Adam experience where God breathes his Spirit into us and we become alive again. And in Romans um, I think it's Romans 8, where Paul talks about the same spirit that quickened Jesus or raised Jesus from the dead now quickens our mortal bodies. And that's what he's saying. He's saying that when we begin to accept Christ and what he has done for us on the cross, that we actually get quickened. We actually become alive again in him. And so... That new creation then leads us to our next point, which is the point new creation. And Paul uh, takes this point further in, first, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, where he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. And this word there, creation, if you're reading the King James, you would, you would read creature. Um, but in the Greek, this word is actually only used by God. Only God creates. And so what Paul is doing there is he's saying, you, when you come into Christ, you are not made of human hands any longer. You are no longer the product of human input. You are the product of God. Right, And it's, it's that Adam imagery all over again. Him forming us, him making us in his own image. And so when he says this in 2 Corinthians, the context of the text is that there are a few people who are, who are so Paul is busy creating new communities within, within, within the first century. And these communities are of people of different colors. Their skin doesn't look the same. They have different cultures and different backgrounds. And you know what it's like when people who are different come together. They bring their old stuff with them to the new place. And they begin to create divisions among one another. And Paul is saying, no, guys, when you are in Jesus, you've become something new. God has formed you himself once again. And the culture and the color of your skin and all of those things are beautiful. And they are amazing and they should be celebrated but the key feature of the Christian is that Christ is in us and that's what we should be exalted. And everything else should be subject to that. And so we celebrate the culture and we celebrate the color of your skin. And we celebrate all these things. 
But at the end of the day, what we are really here for and coming together for is around and we centered around Jesus. And so this is, this is what Paul is getting at with new creation. He's saying, let's not bring the former stuff, the, the fallen man, into the new creation. He's saying, let us no longer think of ourselves as what we were. Let's begin to think of ourselves as what we are now in Jesus, which is new creations, completely new, breathed in by the Spirit of God. And so we see that the point 6.1, I really like this. 6.1.1 says, not a repaired or refurbished version of the old, but brand new. And I struggle with this. I must confess, there are many moments when I'm trying to bring the old into the new. Many times. Oh, this is, this is, Lord, please. Man, I like that part about myself. Why do I have to give this up? <laughs> and it's like, because it doesn't reflect me. That's why, right? And I don't know if any of you struggle with that, but I really, um, there are certain parts of my nature that I have become so attached to that many times God has to say, come on, you're a new creation now. You, I'm, I'm forming you into my image once again. You are no longer that person you used to be. And so 6.1.2, new creation is created in the image, the very image and likeness of, G, of Christ Jesus. It has a new nature, the nature of God. And this new creation uh, is so that we might once again become his kids. So that we might once again become the children of God. And this is what um, uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 15 to 17 says. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. And this forming, this new creation, this being made in his image, is for this purpose. That we might actually recognize and become the children of God. It's something that I have not fully grasped just yet. I sometimes sit and read my Bible and think to myself, God, why would you take humanity and all its faults and say, I want them to be my kids. I want them to be my children. They messed up, they're broken, but I'm not giving up on them. I'm going to become a human. I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to rise again so that even the, I would save them from their own destruction so that they could be my kids. When I think about it like that, it's like I sit back and I say, God, thank you. Thank you that you are so gracious and merciful and good because I don't think I would be able to do that if I were God. And so this word Abba means daddy, denoting a relationship between uh, a relationship with God of deep intimacy and dependency. And I know I'm going back to Adam all the time, but... This year is about what Adam experienced in the garden. This is about that intimate relationship where God walks with Adam in the cool of the day. Adam absolutely dependent on God. 
and knowing that he's reliant on him is not something that he should be ashamed of, but something that he should glory in. And this is, this is why he's saying we should become kids. Kids do not, they are not ashamed to be dependent on their parents. Adults are ashamed to be dependent on others. And when we become children of God and we bear with, with that spirit that cries out, Abba, we are actually saying, God, thank you. We need you. We don't like to admit it. We don't like to verbalize it, but we are so dependent on you. Every breath we breathe is because of your grace, because of what you've given us. But sometimes we get caught in our own world and we think that we're better than we actually are. But God is still good and merciful and gracious and he still welcomes us in. And that's, that's awesome. And this, I would like to read the last point here. And the last point is, is, is the gospel message. And, and basically what I've described for the last, I think maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Um, and you can read those in, in your spare time. Uh, I will read some of it, but I really want to just uh, tell you the story, the message of this gospel. And it goes something like this. God creates Adam. Adam falls. He rebels against God in his goodness. And then God makes a plan. And he has grace, and his grace falls upon Noah. And God's starting the research, the, 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 uh, the ah, forgot the word now. But, <laughs> yes, project reset, basically. The reboot project. He's saying, I'm going to restart the world. And he, and he, and he gives uh, Noah his grace. And he restarts, and he blesses Adam. He blesses Noah the same way he blesses Adam. And after the flood, Noah falls. <laughs> and so God finds Abraham. And God says to Abraham, you know what? I'm going to restart the world using you now. Noah failed, Adam failed, but you're going to be my man. And he blesses Abraham the same way he blessed Adam and Noah. And uh, Abraham falls. <laughs> Uh, but not without leaving a seed. And then Moses comes along, and Galatians 5 talks about this. Moses gives them laws and instructions, taskmasters, those rulers who would, the law basically. And through Moses, he prophesies and he says, one day, one will come like me. And if you read closely the book of Exodus, sometimes it's very hard to separate between Moses and God. So something like, Moses, I'm going to deliver the children of Israel out of the hand of Egypt. Okay, Lord, now go do it. No, Moses, you go. The differentiation between Moses and God is so, sometimes you can't see it. There are moments where Moses says to God, your people are messing with me. Yes, they're my people, I love them. And then when God gets upset, he tells Moses, Moses, your people are really making me upset. And then Moses has to say to God, come on, Lord, these are my people. If you kill them, you have to kill me. And so the story, and this is why the, the, the Jewish nation holds Moses in such high regard. He is the man that got closest to the image of God. And so Moses prophesies and he says, one day a prophet like me will come. Fast forward to Jesus. And God becomes man. He takes the form of a human and he says, you know what, I'm going to come and serve them. 
and I'll become their king because my creation wants a king. I know this about them. They want a king, a physical king. I didn't want to be the physical king, but I'll be that for them if that's what they want. And so he becomes a human, becomes a man. And he goes around saying, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming. It's here, it's here. And his people don't like him. But the Romans, they are skilled at killing people. And so the Jewish people deliver him to the Romans and in his deliverance to the Romans, we actually see this in the latter parts of John where he talks about the crucifixion, how the Romans crown God king. They give Jesus a crown of thorns. It pierced his head, but it was a crown nonetheless. They give him a purple robe, which royalty wore. They give him a reed as a scepter, his scepter of righteousness. And they build him a throne, which we call the cross. And on that throne, they write the message and they say, this is the king of the Jews. And that's how our God became our king. And his first declaration as king was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so that is the nature of our God. His first act as our king was to say, I forgive you. I'm here to save you, not to destroy you. I'm here to rescue you from yourself and deliver you from your sin. And so, in 8.2.1, sorry, I'm just... (laughs) uh, 8.2.1 says this, Christ died a cruel death on the cross, suffering the punishment of our sin, and I've amended that to say that we might have life unto righteousness. And that's actually a quote from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And this is the message of salvation, the message of the gospel, that the God of the universe became a human so that he could become our king so that his first declaration as king would be to forgive us of our sin and to save us from our own destruction. And so the personal application of this lesson uh, would be to believe and to respond to it and also to go and share this wonderful news. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 from the Passion Translation says this, Now, since we are God's co-workers, we beg you not to take God's marvelous grace for granted, allowing it to have no effect on your lives. For he says, I listened to you at the time of my favor, that the day when you needed salvation, I came to your aid. So can't you see? Now is the time to respond to his favor. Now is the day salvation. And if you haven't accepted Christ as your Lord, as your King, uh, and you'd like to do so, I'd just like to pray a prayer with you, and you can just follow after me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything that you've done 
on the cross. Forgive me from my sin and my wickedness and my rebellion towards you. I accept your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy. And I pray, Lord, that I from this day on would follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.